Well, happy Easter. Oh, thank you. That's a great response. Um, it is such a huge privilege to to preach on Easter Sunday. Um, we're coming to the end, as you know, of our studies in Matthew, um, and we land. We, we've planned to land uh, appropriately today on Easter Sunday to think about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It turns out that the cross is not the end of Matthew's account. And in fact, we might say that if, it, if it, there wouldn't even be a Matthew's gospel if it wasn't for the resurrection that happens uh, right here. At the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew had likened the birth of Jesus to a new dawn. I don't know if you remember, in chapter 4, Matthew describes how a people living in darkness had seen a great light. When Jesus was born, it was like a sunrise, piercing the gloom. But by the end, it is Jesus himself, in a sense, who emerges like the sun from the deepest darkness of the grave in an even greater dawn. You'll know that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, of course, the central claim of Christianity from its very beginning. And it is the most dramatic of all reversals, isn't it? We, we might say that this world cancelled Jesus. But even the grave could not contain him. And so the Christian gospel doesn't primarily point us to Jesus as merely a brilliant teacher or a compassionate healer or some kind of enlightened religious guru. This climax here of the resurrection powerfully declares Jesus to stand in a category, in a, in a class all by himself as the God-man. One writer says that the Christian gospel is not so much about Jesus, it's more that Jesus himself is the gospel. <laughs> That's a powerful phrase, isn't it? The gospel isn't about him. He himself is the gospel. Now, compared to um, Luke and John in, in their gospels, Matthew and Mark actually are very brief in, in their resurrection kind of narrative. It's very tight. Uh, but I think Matthew is trying to show us three crucial things, and we're going to use them as our headings today. Uh, the, there's far too many words on the, on the notes. Um, but essentially, it comes down to these three things. We're, we're going to begin at the end of chapter 27, where, first of all, Matthew is very clear in establishing that Jesus really was dead. That's number one. And then in chapter 28, Matthew goes on to show that his tomb was definitely empty. That's number two. And then finally, Matthew records for us the fact that not only was his tomb empty, 
But people met the risen Jesus in person. Okay? So there's a lot of words there, but they're the three things. Jesus was really dead. His tomb was definitely empty. And he appeared to people who met him, the risen Jesus, afterwards. They're the three things that Matthew wants us to know. So, first of all, Jesus was really dead. That might seem an odd thing to say. This is important, though, because some people have claimed that Jesus didn't really die. In fact, our Muslim friends still maintain this today. And of course, if Jesus didn't die, then there was obviously no resurrection. But Matthew here calls, I think, three separate groups of witnesses to underline the fact of Jesus' death. The first two groups, it's quite strange actually, the first two groups are previously unknown followers of Jesus who then play a huge part in this final chapter. And, and the third group we'll get to after we've looked at them. So the first group I want to draw your attention to, eyewitness group number one, if you like, is the women. We're going to start in verse 55. Look with me. It'd be great if you've got a Bible open because we're going to refer a lot to these verses. Verse 55 of chapter 27, Matthew says, Many women were there watching from a distance. It, the, these women, Matthew tells us, these women had apparently traveled with Jesus and followed Jesus all the way from Galilee in the north. It's about 100 miles away. And it's easy, isn't it, to think of Jesus and his 12 disciples, this little band of, of men who are traveling around and doing all this stuff. We, we now realize that this is a much larger group. How many women is many women? There, there, there's, a, there's a larger group here of women who are part of this entourage. In Luke's gospel, we learn that some of these women were financially independent. So, some of them were married to politicians. And, and they supported Jesus and his disciples from their own pockets. Matthew identifies three of them uh, from, from this larger group. And it's interesting, the two Marys are mentioned partly as a preparation, because we'll, we'll meet them again in a minute, and they, they show up at the tomb on Sunday. But the other one isn't named. We, we think her name is Salome. She's referred to here as the mother of Zebedee's son. That's the mother of James and John, who were two disciples of Jesus. And I wonder whether she's mentioned, because you, you might recall this, back in chapter 20, she came to Jesus privately and said, can my two sons sit next to you when you sit on your throne one day? And Jesus said, they're not able to drink the cup that I'm about to. It's interesting that Matthew records that she was there. Now she sees for herself what Jesus meant when he said, they won't be able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. But I think the real reason that Matthew notes these women here is because they're the only people who see everything. These women in verse 55 have seen Jesus die. And then look at verse 61. These same women see Jesus buried. And in fact, they stay at the tomb even after everyone else leaves. 
as if they're keeping a kind of silent vigil. And then on Sunday morning in chapter 28, verse 1, they're there again. These women, in other words, form a kind of line of continuity as eyewitnesses. They've seen the death, they've seen the burial, and they've seen the resurrection of Jesus. They're the last to leave on the Friday. And they're the first to return on the Sunday morning. And the really striking thing here is not just their obvious love, but it's their loyalty, isn't it? Some of you will recognise the famous commentary when England won the World Cup in 1966. There's some people on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. Jesus is dead. All the men have fled. They think it's all over. It is now. And yet these dear women are still here, sitting on a wall, watching and wondering and grieving. What are they waiting for? And it it struck me powerfully this week. I wonder whether this is somehow actually very up to date in our society, as you, as you, if you, if you like, as we live as Christians, what, what do you do when the truth of the gospel seems lost? Nobody seems to believe anything anymore. What do you do when it looks like it's all over? These women are somehow such a great example, aren't they? Just by being here, Still, when it all seems over, here they are, sitting opposite the tomb. Their loyalty is stunning. The second eyewitness group that Matthew draws our attention to is a man called Joseph. And I I call it a group because I'm sure he didn't do this on his own. Joseph and friends, if you like. Before we meet him, we, we need to understand, first of all, that when criminals were crucified by the Romans, they never got a proper burial. None of them. Most often, the Romans would generally leave dead corpses on the cross to rot and be eaten by birds. It, it's horrible, isn't it? Hello. The Jews were apparently more sensitive and sometimes they would take bodies down from crosses, but even then only to bury them in unmarked common graves. So this burial is completely unexpected for someone who is crucified as a criminal. And another huge factor here is the time. You you may know that Jesus died at 3 p.m. on the Friday, but the Jewish Sabbath was reckoned to begin at 6 p.m. on the Friday evening. So if Jesus is going to be buried before the Sabbath starts, someone's got to do it quick. And all four Gospels introduce Joseph from Arimathea as the solution to this. 
In verse 57, Matthew tells us, first of all, that Joseph was a wealthy man. But he had also himself become a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Remember, Jesus said that it was hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It was like trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. Joseph's one of the very few who managed to squeeze through. But Mark and Luke, interestingly, also tell us that Joseph was also a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who had arrested Jesus and had him killed. Joseph hadn't consented to their appalling treatment of Jesus. But John tells us in his gospel that at this point, Joseph was a secret follower of Jesus for fear of the Jews. This man is a wealthy member of the aristocracy, a politician. But he's a follower of Jesus and no one knows. And it seems that while the death of Jesus caused all the disciples to run away and flee, it had the opposite effect on Joseph. It seems to have emboldened him. And for the first time, he steps up and his courage and generosity in this sad moment are incredible. I, I think it's his political connections that mean that he can go to Pilate. He knows Pilate. His Sanhedrin friends would have surely said no, but it wasn't their decision. And even though it's a risky re request, Joseph goes to Pilate and asks if he can have the body of Jesus. It's a risky move, but Pilate gives his permission. And so Joseph lovingly takes down the body of Jesus. He cleans it and he places it in clean linen in his own new family tomb. Only the rich would have the resources to make a tomb like this one and it seems that Joseph's only just made it, cut into the side of a rock. But there, I, I want you to see that this is a completely generous gesture because once you've buried a criminal in a grave, you, you can't bury anyone else in that same grave. So maybe he's built this grave for himself and his family. But when it comes to the crunch, he goes to Pilate, he asks for the body, and he lays the body of Jesus in his own new tomb, never to be able to use it again. The women were an example of loyalty. But the crucifixion of Jesus causes Joseph's courage and generosity to shine. Joseph goes from being fearful to fearless. He's no longer a secret believer, but now known publicly as a disciple of Jesus who doesn't care anymore what anyone else will say. The third group of eyewitnesses are not Jesus' friends, but his enemies. You'll notice in verse 62 that the very next day, 
the chief priests and the Pharisees also go to Pilate. Pilate must be sick of this, mustn't he? People queuing up. <laughs> he can have his body. And then the next day, Pilate must be fed up with this. They've obviously heard, that, I mean, these are Joseph's colleagues from the Sanhedrin as well, some of them. They've heard what Joseph has done the previous evening. And even though Jesus is dead, they still can't let it lie. And they seem anxious that even though Jesus is buried in a tomb, that this is still somehow not the end. And don't forget, this is also now the Sabbath day. So as Jewish men, they must be very worried to break their own religious rules by visiting Pilate on what's their own Sabbath day. I've called this irony. The the first irony here is is obvious, isn't it? That that these men remember Jesus' claims that he would rise from the dead and the disciples have forgotten. That's ironic straight away, isn't it? Where are the disciples? They've all run away and these men who are Jesus' enemies remember what he predicted. From what they say, though, in verse 63 and 64, it's obvious that they don't believe that Jesus will actually rise. Their fear is that the disciples will come and steal the body and pretend that he's risen. They ask Pilate to give them Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. Because of their fear, these men totally overestimate the disciples and they totally underestimate Jesus, don't they? They think the disciples are more courageous than they really are and they, it doesn't even occur to them in the slightest that Jesus might actually rise from the, rise from the death. But to me, uh, it seems to me that Pilate mocks them here a little bit for still being afraid of Jesus. Well, after he's, I can imagine Pilate saying, who's this at the door now? This, he, the, the man's in his tomb. <laughs> so verse 65 is very difficult to translate, and the NIV is not very good here. It reads as if Pilate agrees to their request when he says, take a guard. Actually, literally, it says, you have guards off your toddle. That, that's, it doesn't say that, obviously, but it, it, it basically says, you have guards, off you go. Do your best, guys. I think Pilate refuses them, the Roman soldiers, partly because he knows that Jesus was innocent and partly because these men have their own temple guards. You can see it, actually, in, verse, in chapter 28, verse 11, when the guards return to the chief priests rather than go to Pilate. These are the chief priest guards, the temple guards. I I think Pilate has had enough. And I think he said to him, I'm not giving you soldiers when the man's dead. You got what you wanted. He's in his tomb. Let it go. If you want to guard the tomb, use your own guys. You can almost hear Pilate muttering to himself, idiots, as they leave. You know, it's... So the men who got Jesus killed also now go to great lengths to properly lock him in his grave. And we've seen this tomb, you've seen pictures of 
Steve showed one earlier, this, these are the kind of tombs that would be cut into the side of a, a rock. And then the door would be covered by like a, like a large millstone, big circular stone. And there'd be a little groove with a slight incline on it. And there'd be a wedge to stop the, to stop the stone. They'd lay the body in the tomb and then they'd knock the wedge out of the way and the stone would roll down the groove covering the door of the tomb. But these men also post soldiers and officially seal it. And they, they would do that by putting a piece of rope across the stone with the ends glued in in wax. So it would be obvious if someone's moved the stone, they'd have to break the, 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 the chief priest's seal. But here, here's the second irony, though. The, the fact that they seal and guard the tomb so well to make sure that no one steals the body, doesn't that help to totally eliminate one of the possible alternatives to the resurrection happening? It's kind of self-defeating. Now we know that even if the disciples wanted to, they couldn't have stolen the body because these guys have made it impossible for them to do so. We'll see later that the really crazy thing is that having taken such careful precautions for them not to say this, this is still the best story they can come up with when, it, when the resurrection happens. So there's an irony in that as well. We'll come back to that. This seal has all of their political authority behind it. But the combination of all the powers of Rome and Israel couldn't contain Jesus. This, this is like trying to tie a giant up with a bit of string. They, they tried to stop people getting in and they never dreamt that the dead person inside would get out. All this is to show that both Jesus' friends and his enemies knew that Jesus was really dead. So secondly, Matthew uh, tells us that his tomb was amazingly also definitely empty. Matthew tells us in chapter 28 that at first light, the women went to look at the tomb. There's a wonderful understatement of that, isn't it? They went to look at the tomb. <laughs> it's like but peace and quiet was the last thing they experienced. Matthew actually is way more dramatic with his earthquakes and angels and paralyzed guards than the other gospels seem to be. But the first thing to notice is, is this. I've been thinking about this. None of the Gospels even come close to describing the actual moment of the resurrection. No one saw it. And it raises a good question, doesn't it? Why did Jesus not allow someone to see the moment? 
And I, I, I was helped this week. One writer suggests this, um, that, a, that actually it puts us all on the same level. All of us must take the fact of the resurrection on faith, by faith. And even here, the women had to trust the angels. Explanation. Then the men had to trust the women. When the, we'll come back to that in a minute. And we ourselves, even now, have to trust those disciples' accounts that we now have in our hands. It, all, all of us are in the same boat. We, we've all got to believe in the resurrection by faith. No, no one saw, it's, there's a mystery here, isn't it? No one saw the moment. But let, let's look then at what Matthew does tell us. The, the first thing to notice is the little word for in verse 2. There was a violent earthquake for, that little word for really means because, doesn't it? You know, th there, was a, there was a violent earthquake because. What, what that seems to imply is that the earthquake happens because the angel moves the stone. And I, I, I think we are clearly meant to sense something glorious happening here. It's unusual. It's this supernatural stuff going on here. Remember, in Matthew's Gospel, there are angels at the beginning. Uh, in, well, in Luke's Gospel, uh, Joseph has a dream, doesn't he, in, in, in Matthew's Gospel. There are angels at the beginning when Jesus was born, and now they appear here again at the end. This time, physically robust and powerful. Matthew simply says that the angel came down from heaven. And there's reference here to shining, blinding, heavenly glory. <laughs> it, it makes me think, though, if this is the heavenly caretaker, let's call the angel out. I don't want to be irreverent to angels. If this is the heavenly caretaker who is simply opening the door, imagine how glorious and powerful Jesus himself must be. This, in a sense, is just a servant in the house. And the guards are paralyzed with terror when they see him. It's ironic in verse 4 that they are meant to be guarding a corpse. There's a little hint of irony when Matthew says they shook and became like dead men. <laughs> They're guarding a dead man and they end up being paralyzed with terror. And I love the fact that Matthew tells us that the angel is sitting on the stone afterwards. I, I don't want to be trivial here, but I'm in my mind I'm like, you know, it's 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 like what well, it's as if the angel is putting his feet up and chilling out. Job done. The angel comes down, rolls the stone, and then sits there. Oh, Charles Spurgeon, famous old preacher in the late eighteen hundreds, makes the comment that when the angel had rolled the stone back from the door, he sat upon it as if to defy earth and hell ever to roll it back again. 
I love that comment. This is a sitting of victory. And the point of all this, of course, is that the angel doesn't have to move the stone to let Jesus out. What the angel's doing is moving the stone to let the women see in. Jesus has already gone. And the way Matthew writes, to me, it suggests that the women saw all this drama. And it makes the angel's words so important, doesn't it? Do not be afraid, seems to be said with a nod to the guards. It's almost as if the angel's going, I, I understand why they all faint on the floor with fear. But you, you women, you dear, dear women, you don't need to be afraid. And there's sympathy, isn't it? Isn't there? I, the, the angel says, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus. Isn't that lovely? I know what you're doing. There's clarity. He was crucified. There it is again. Yes, he was really dead. There's also explanation. He's not here. Why? Because he's risen. And there's a gentle reminder too, isn't there? Just as he said. He told you this. Do you remember? There's an invitation. Come and see the place where he laid. And there's a new task for them. Go quickly and tell the others. These women are therefore not just witnesses of all this, but they're also messengers to other people. It's as if the angel says, see, and then go. And the message is simple and clear. He has risen from the dead. Just look back to the end of verse 64 in the previous chapter. Because that phrase on the angel's lips is the exact phrase the chief priests were worried that the disciples would make up. But the phrase isn't the culmination of deception. The phrase is found on the lips of a mighty angel who is explaining why the tomb is vacant. And it becomes clear the disciples couldn't possibly have masterminded such a hoax. They were nowhere near. They had nothing to do with it. It's the angel who explains, he has risen. I want to highlight something else, though, that is really beautiful here. Did you know that in this era, in the first century, both in Israel and in the Roman Empire, that women were not considered to be credible witnesses? If there was a court case, women were not considered to be reliable. And in fact, Luke actually tells us in his gospel that when the women told the men what they'd seen, 
Even the other disciples didn't believe them at first. See how God chooses these women, not just to be the first to see the empty tomb, but also the first to pass the news on. In a moment, actually, they'll also be the first people to meet the risen Jesus. So see how God seems to choose those who society might think are the most vulnerable, but God chooses them to see and chooses them to be sent to others. It, what I mean to say is that if someone was trying to make this account up, they would never in a million years in this era write it like this. They would never place such an important discovery in the hands of women. They'd have had men discovering it. But God does. And it's, it's not a feminist thing. This, this is before feminism was ever an idea. The disciples are clearly very important too. You can see this in the fact that both the angel and later Jesus tells these women to go and tell the men. But see first how highly honored by God these women are and how powerfully God speaks through these precious women to others. Something very beautiful in that. So, Matthew is helping us to know that Jesus was really dead. And then secondly, that despite the best attempts of his enemies to secure it, his tomb is definitely empty. But the final important piece of clinching evidence from Matthew is that these women, and later the men too, encounter the risen Jesus in person. So let's think thirdly about this fact. People met the risen Jesus. I love the mixture of emotions in verse 8. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. As they hurry off to do what they've been told to do by the angel, I, I love the order and the size of these respective emotions. They were afraid, yet filled with joy. He doesn't say that they had joy, but they were filled with fear. You get that? They, they, they were naturally, understandably, there's fear there, but the joy is bigger. You get that? They were afraid, but filled with joy. And on the way, they meet Jesus himself. There are lots of times in the Gospels where people are said or, or seem to meet Jesus. This is a unique place where Jesus is said to deliberately come to meet them. And he greets them. In, in our Bibles here, in verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. That's an interesting word. In, in the Greek, it, it, it kind of means rejoice, but it, it essentially, it's an everyday phrase that is apparently a kind of very happy hello. Think of it like that. I want you to 
uh, realize that in chapter 26, Judas had used the exact same word in the garden, falsely, maybe even with a smile, greetings. It's a happy hello. He said it to Jesus and betrayed him. But here, Jesus greets these women, not deceptively, but genuinely and lovingly. And the fact that they clasp his feet, that there's something both intimate and humble. It involves bowing down for sure, filled with love and adoration. Perhaps they hold on tight because they never want him to leave again. But Matthew tells us here that this is a moment of worship too as they begin to realize who Jesus really is. Worship in the Bible is always reserved for God himself. And yet here Matthew tells us that they worship Christ who doesn't tell them off. He doesn't say stand up. He receives their adoration warmly and gladly. They're beginning to see who he really is. And Jesus actually repeats the angel's comfort and the angel's mission. Do not be afraid comes first. But notice in verse 10 that Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my Brothers, do you know this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls his disciples brothers? They all ran away. But he loves them. They were cowards. But they're still his. They're his cowards. Go and tell my brothers. And Jesus, even more than that, tells the women to urge these men to go north to Galilee. And this is so important. It's where they all met, first of all. So that's very significant. But socially, socially, Galilee was the place where nothing good ever happened. It, I, I've said this to you so many times. It's like they're all in London outside the House of Parliament. And, and Jesus says, tell them to go to Barnsley. You know, th this is the capital city. This is where everything important happens. It was even known as Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, it wasn't Jerusalem. It was out there on the margins. So not only does God speak through the vulnerable, he's always looking for the vulnerable. And I think for Matthew, a reunion in Galilee is the first step. I don't want to steal Ben's thunder from next week. It's the first step in opening up the joy of resurrection to a whole world who didn't know that it was for them. Tell them I'll see them in Galilee. I want to finish sometime today. <laughs> I want to finish today with um, 
a final contrast will be done with this. Verse 11 is interesting. Uh, it says, while the women were on their way in one direction, some of the guards had recovered from their shock and they were going in the other direction. The, get this, the women were sent by the angel and by their Lord with brilliant, happy news. While the guards go to their bosses and get bribed to tell lies. Now we've touched on it already, but the story they come up with in verse 13 is just terrible. It, it, it is just terrible. It's the best they could do. First, these guards have to admit that their guarding was a total shambles. <laughs> we fell asleep on the job. As a soldier, you could get killed for that. Secondly, it was so obviously stupid. The disciples came and stole the body while we were asleep. How did you know it was the disciples if you were asleep? And you didn't see it. And thirdly, it makes no sense because the disciples were all cowards who had run away. They were all in hiding. But last of all, this, this has struck me looking at this this week. These very guards had also seen the angel. And they knew the truth. No wonder they were promised such a large bribe in verse 12. There's actually more than a hint that the chief priest will also bribe Pilate in verse 14. But here's the contrast. The risen Jesus has triumphed. And one group goes off to tell the truth while the other spreads lies. These chief priests, don't forget, in chapter 27, had referred to Jesus as a deceiver. And now here they are, scheming and bribing to publish fake news. I also want to say, this is actually a terrible crime on their part. Back in chapter 16, some of these same men had asked Jesus to give them a sign from heaven that he was truly the Messiah. And Jesus said, I'm not giving you any sign except the sign of Jonah. Three days, in other words. Here he gives them the most clearest, crystal clear, incredible sign. And they do their absolute best to bury the truth in the same way they try to bury his body. And I, I, the truth is, they lie because Jesus is threatening. If the resurrection happened, it means that he is king. So, what about us? What about you? How do you respond to Matthew's brief account here? Do you believe in the Jesus that he describes? Or will you suppress and push him away?
one writer I came across suggests that this, this is not just a miracle for show either. The resurrection of Jesus actually changes everything. This is not just the dawn of another day or even another week. This, this is the dawn of a completely new age. The resurrection tore a hole in normal history and opened up a completely new world. Death is no longer a dead end. Before this, it was. Jesus entered the grave, but it was not a cul-de-sac. And as the sun rose on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus smashed through death and his resurrection doesn't only powerfully declare who he really is but it also provides the rock solid hope of physical resurrection for us too. We sang in our first song saw we now where he has led following our exalted Jesus is risen from the dead. Will you give yourself to him today? Let's bow for a moment, shall we, before we sing.